So before the talk that I would like to offer you this evening, we wanted to extend to you our appreciation and our acknowledgement for being such sincere yogis. It's been wonderful to see you all go deeper in your practice among all the ups and downs that you've had um, here, things we've heard about and probably 99% that we haven't heard, but so much more that you've gone through, let go of, come clear about, and uh, are able to face what's going on with more courage, more compassion, and hopefully more equanimity, which is the talk I'm going to offer this evening about equanimity. So now we're all going back into the lives that we participate in, into uh, a world, nothing big has happened. I mean, it's the same old thing. (laughs) Uh, So I guess I won't need to fill that out. But hopefully it's not the same thing within ourselves in relationship to out there. We, we can go back into our lives uh, with a little more openness, with a little more ability to face what needs to be faced in a clearer, more compassionate way. So how can we translate the awareness and all the beautiful qualities that we've learned in here, in our time here together, into the world. I mean, that's a big koan for each one of us as we go out back into our families, our communities, and uh, to our jobs. And so what have we learned here? I think it's a time when we start to assess ourselves. We want to be able to share what we have uh, in the world, and at the same time as we're sharing it, to really be aware of the goodness that we have gained here in ourselves so that we continue to deepen what we've learned here together. A long time ago, when this place first started, about 40 years ago or more, someone went home after retreat and wrote back to uh, people here in the office. I think Steve was here at that time, way back when. And... uh, the note that this person wrote went like this. I'm just paraphrasing. This person said, My family doesn't like me when I'm a Buddhist. But when I simply embody the qualities of a Buddha, then they love me. So that's what we want to do when we go home to see whether those beautiful qualities that we've learned that we actually have or we might have the capacity for, that we can embody those, that we can actually bring those into reality and to strengthen them as we go home, to give voice and behavior to them. So we start to live into them. A quality that accompanies and empowers mindful awareness that's really powerful, important, is equanimity. And um, this is one of the first things I talked about when I gave my first Dhamma talk to you, how when the qualities of uh, effort and concentration are balanced, 
the qualities of wisdom and faith are balanced. As our teacher Upandita said, when these four are in balance with one another, then mindfulness becomes effortless. And not only that, but when this mindful awareness becomes effortless, then the quality of equanimity is also strengthened. It's, it's also given nourishment, and it begins to develop in our practice. So this is a quality that we desperately need in this life because of the, the way that life is nowadays. It's going so fast and furious, and it's like we can't keep up with it. And we need a kind of balance, rebalancing all the time uh, within ourselves to meet the outer Um, the ways that we face the outer environment. And it's not just this balance, but I find that we need a lot more than balance. We need spaciousness in our hearts, in our minds, to be able to contain all that life is uh, kind of throwing at us sometimes. All of life that we need to open to in order to um, be realistic with what's going on, inwardly and outwardly. So we need to be able to hold everything that's happening and not push it away, deny it, and to hold it in a way that's balanced so that we're taking in what we can at the right time. We're not kind of overloading ourselves. We know what's happening inwardly. We know how much we can take. Some years ago, I came across a writing by the Reverend Howard Thurman. He was a co-founder of the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco. This is a place where I was raised. And so um, his words have become more and more exceedingly important to me, and I want to inspire you with these words uh, that have inspired me. And this comes from a collection of his meditations entitled Deep is the Hunger. And I, I imagine what he's talking about here is, is the hunger for opening, the hunger for developing this balance, the hunger for connecting with his heart and the hearts of others. So he says in this writing, how may we work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world, without despair and complete fatigue? What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with its vicissitudes of cruelty and joys, transient joys, with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit? So I usually entitle this talk, Seeing the World with Quiet Eyes seeing the world with quiet eyes, because it's something that I can envision. Sometimes when I look out upon the world and I get this reaction from inside, it's a reactivity to what's happening out in the world, I realize I'm not seeing the world with quiet eyes, seeing the world with reactivity, with habit patterns that really don't work, that haven't worked over and over again, but I let them have power over me, over my actual sense of real agency in the world. 
And so it's really wonderful to come to a place like this and to open to those habit patterns that have taken over and to really understand them and to see the strength of them and to actually bring up uh, a deep and also powerful awareness that can face that and that can stop that habitual pattern because what awareness does is it sees things as they are it's that mirror that reflects what's going on and then wisdom comes along and says either this is skillful or this is unskillful but if there's no awareness that wisdom can't come along it can't really make that discernment so when there's just habitual reaction to what's going on. It's just what goes on out out there in the world, the reactivity of habit patterns inwardly, and it just kind of pounces on or avoids what's happening. And so in our practice here together, we learn to stay spacious and gentle and open and honest and really reflect let, let awareness reflect what's going on without kind of backing down or closing down or turning away or striking out at, which are all habitual forces that are happening. When there is wisdom with it, which mindfulness, mindful awareness can pull forth, there is an ability for that understanding of um, this is wise or unwise, this is skillful, this is unskillful. This will cause harm, this will cause harmony. So that kind of wise discernment comes along with that awareness so that we have the wherewithal to respond in a way that causes harmony rather than harm. So equanimity is an important subject to reflect upon because in the times we live in, in in the society we live in, there's a lot of challenge navigating the terrain we are faced with. There's a lot of confusion and uncertainty. The injustice of all the isms of the world, racism and genderism and sexism and um, all of that. I can't, ageism, I can't name them all. But there's, there's a lot of ways that um, we're habitually unfair with life. And life is habitually unfair with us too. So we need to start somewhere. We need to start at a place of being aware, which brings on a lot of beautiful qualities, wisdom, compassion, equanimity, a sense of that humanity that can cause harmony. So here we learn to slow down and actually be content with doing less. We learn to feel the earth beneath our feet, to be quiet and restful and relaxed inside so that this ability to see things as they really are can really come about. I found a a couple of um, quotes from Thomas Merton, who's an American Trappist monk, who lives in the Gethsemane um, Abbey in Kentucky. As most of you know, he's a poet and a social activist and a student of comparative religion, and he's very interested 
most of his uh, life as a monk with um, the Dhamma, understanding the Dhamma. So he verifies a lot of we, what we have learned here in some of these quotes that I'm going to offer to you, this kind of wisdom from a different tradition in a way, but a tradition in his particular um, a path that was open to understanding all different kinds of ways of seeing life and seeing the value of the Dhamma. So he calls this courageous rest, what we're doing here together. Some of us need to discover that we will not begin to live more fully until we have the courage to do and see, to taste and experience less than usual. There are times when, in order to keep ourselves in existence at all, we simply have to sit back for a while and do nothing. And for a person who has, who has let themselves be drawn completely out of themselves through activity, nothing is more difficult than to sit still and rest, to do nothing at all. The very act of resting is the hardest and most courageous act a person can perform. And especially as, as time goes on, you know, things get more complex, or more people were interacting with one another, and all the things that are going on in the environment and climate change, all of that that we have to deal with now. There's such high speed also in the world that to actually do what we're doing is radical in the world. And it's hardly bringing the balance that we need in the whole world, but it's something. It's some kind of stillness and rest as opposed to the busyness and the kind of um, uh, fractionalization that happens within and as a society. So he also says this about the busyness and violence of modern life. And he uh, talked about this when um, he was facing a lot of the things he had to face about the modernization of life and its busyness and being an activist himself. So he said, the rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common, of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of the activists destroys their own inner capacity for peace, the fruitfulness of one's own work, because it kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. So this is how it is for us in the world today. And and this was written in about the 1960s. So now it's much more complex in our lives. So it's understandable that we can feel vulnerable and agitated and depressed and anxious. And um, this is what we hear a lot. It's ubiquitous with everyone in some form, in some intensity or another. The The Buddha often spoke of these eight worldly conditions that he also called the four pairs of vicissitudes that we're constantly in flux with. 
And this is what the Reverend Howard Thurman was always was also referring to. So these four pairs, and they're the opposites of one another, this is part of our life on this relational world, in this relative world. And, and this is the truth of the relative world. There is, the Buddha said in this world, praise and blame. There is gain and loss. There is fame and disrepute. There is pleasure and pain. There are these ups and downs. This is the truth of this life in relationship in this relative world. It's the major reason we feel this existential vulnerability. This is the first noble truth. If we deny this, we're denying the first noble truth. So of course we like to be praised. We don't like to be criticized. We like to have gain in our lives, like success, not loss. We like approval and recognition and inclusion, of course. It's hard to be criticized, to be dismissed, to be rejected. We prefer pleasure, of course, and we avoid pain. Of course we do. We're human beings. The external painful conditions are constantly affecting us. And then the inner conditions react out of habit pattern. And this is what we're here for, to see what those habit patterns are. So they can possibly abate or they can weaken and eventually be uprooted through the power of awareness and wisdom and all the beautiful qualities that come together with those, those two qualities. So we have those painful outer conditions that we live with, the relationship um, tsunamis that happen in our life, the things that are going on in our communities, in our families, in society as a whole, and the world. And then we have, that's the first arrow of pain. And the second arrow of pain is how we respond to that. Of course we're going to say, ouch, it hurts. But a lot of times we do a lot more than that. It's just not saying, just not uh, acknowledging that this is painful, which we, of course, would do and have the right to do. But it's also pushing away, rejecting, acting in ways that cause more pain, not only to others, because we, maybe we blame or we shame or we, um, we hurt others because it's painful inside of ourselves, but we also hurt ourselves by allowing those habit patterns to continue. So that's the second arrow. The first arrow is the outer world that's painful. And the second arrow is that we allow those habitual tendencies to continue. So I'd like to read something from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And when I read this, I realized that I wasn't alone. And of course, you know, I know this as a human being, but he's talking here about when he gives a talk to a lot of people. And a lot of times I I feel the same way he does, but of course, in a very much lower level way. Um, He says, when he's giving a talk, he's he's, um, affected by these eight worldly conditions, he says. I think all of us, I'm quoting him now, I think all of us are concerned in particular about maintaining a good reputation 
For example, when I'm up here on the throne teaching, somewhere in the back of my mind there appears the thought, how am I doing? That happens to me too. (laughs) How are people going to react to this? Are they going to praise me or criticize me? You know, oftentimes, just, um, just an interjection here, oftentimes after a Dhamma talk, I'll have a lot of, well, maybe not a lot of, but a few or several cringing moments. Like I'll, I'll just remember when I'm having a cup of tea by myself later, oh, why did I say that? Oh, I should have said this instead. Oh, somebody else might have felt effect, uh, offended by that. And so I, really I just have to watch that, that um, reactivity in myself because usually it, it, it's probably the opposite of that. I was probably helpful, but I'm, you know, I just think bad of myself by habit sometimes. So he says, uh, will people criticize me? Whenever this happens, I need to catch myself and say, look, Now that I'm here transmitting the Dharma, I should not allow myself to be affected by the eight worldly concerns. Even when we do something virtuous, they will try to find a way to slip in. Which is so true. I guess that's why they say, you know, being a, a public speaker is one of the scariest things in the world. So, in this story, there's this example of how we're not only affected by the outer conditions, but we're painfully affected by our own response to the outer conditions. And so this is what gets us the most. My, one of my friends, who's also a yogi, said, she was telling me about her life and what was going on around her. And, she, and it, wasn't, it, it wasn't very good. It wasn't very nice. But she said, you know, that doesn't bother me as much as my own thoughts. I feel, and then she used this word which was very descriptive. She said, I feel assaulted by my own thoughts. And it's, it's worse than somebody actually, she described it this way, but I'm paraphrasing her. It was worse than actually someone physically pummeling her. She felt just assaulted by her own thoughts. And so this is, this is sort of the truth of how, how it is for us, right? We're, it's not easy to be here in this quietness and to sit with just our thoughts. It looks like you're a bunch of angels. When I'm here, sometimes I open my eyes and I look around and I think, wow, you look like a bunch of angelic beings. But I know, I've been in your place many times, and I don't know for sure, but, you know, I could just imagine what might be going on in your minds, you know. (laughs) Maybe not as bad as what goes on in my own mind, but this morning, um, see, I don't want to point anybody out, but I was looking around and I just saw somebody go like this. And I felt just so much softness. And I just you know, just had kind of a little tears of joy and tears of, like, connection about that. It was just a simple little like that, you know. It was so beautiful. So with the outer conditions and the unseen habit patterns coming from within, 
that are constantly bombarding us, it's no wonder that we feel closed down. We're always trying to protect ourselves from ourselves in a way. We can feel overwhelmed and disconnected from our own hearts and um, we don't know how to respond. Uh, This is what happens to me. I mean, I've been in the Dharma a long time. I have a lot of wherewithal about what's going on in my own heart. And it's still very difficult, you know, just... But I I have more courage to see what's going on and uh, more of an ability to open to what's more difficult than I did a long time ago. So I like what Manindra says, my path is not yet finished, of course. So there's still you know, difficulties, greed, hatred, delusion, very different levels of it, lighter than it was before, um, but still difficult. So the important questions to ask ourselves are, how can we stay open and connected? More connected to our inner lives, really, um, than we than we. I think we need to value that more, to be more connected with our inner lives. And also connected to what's going on out there, to really open to what's going on in the world so we can, and then open to what's going on in here so we can do the little things that we do in life or the big things that we do in life to be an agent of of peace and harmony in the world. So how can we have this abiding sense of openness and balance and clarity and spaciousness? So the, the, this, is, this is what we're learning to value more as we're here, these, all these qualities of equanimity. So rather than reacting to the situation that's going on out there, and then what happens is we look at the situation in here that we've just reacted with, and then we have another level of reactivity to ourselves, you know, the judgment to ourselves. So there's, there's not just one, two arrows. There can be how we react to ourselves. And then, you know, there's la- layers and layers of that. So how can we stay aware yet compassionate too? It's said that equanimity uh, empowers, makes compassion more powerful because we're able to open to the suffering of the world, which includes in here, with more courage, because there's balance and there's an ability to to open wide and to say, I'm not going to close down to this. I'm really going to open to it, even when it's difficult. We stop trying to control things around us so much. We have to have a certain amount of order, of course, but it's not like we have to have things in a certain way in order for us to be, to be mindful, to be aware. I think I told you the story of, or a group, the story of how I was at one, it wasn't my first retreat with Sayadaw Utejaniya, who's the teacher we've been all studying with, um, with um, noticing the qualities of the mind, citta uh, nupasana, mindfulness of mind. And I was in um, New Zealand, and there was a, it was his retreat, and we were sitting in the hall like this, there were just about 40 of us, and um, he allowed talking, 
And so there were people talking right outside the hall like they were talking right in the, in the walking place here next door. And they were just talking and laughing. So I asked him, can we just ask them to be someplace else? You know, maybe they could just talk in another place, like the dining room, or that would, be, that would give us some stillness. And he said, no. He said, you have to learn how to be with that and know what your, what your mind is doing in relationship to that. Is it trying to control? Is it trying to... Um, you just, do you need it to be perfectly silent for you to know what's going on in your mind? That's not how it is in the world. So it's really preparing us for what the world is like, how it is in the world. When the kids are screaming, can we still have a sense of balance inside? So it's to live with all these fluctuations of life. We need to remain calm, clear, equanimous, and to still know at the same time what's going on in here. So I've been um, going through some poems of these beautiful nuns of um, the past, you know, in the 1400s and the 1300s, and usually they're nuns from Korea or Japan in the Zen tradition. And this one is from, uh, I'd like to read a poem from Izumi Shikibu. She was a woman of Japan in the ninth century, actually. And um, this one says a lot to me all the time. Watching the moon at midnight, solitary mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. And so that, that's not just in the quiet, you know, that's in the noisiness of life. Can we do that? I mean, that's what this practice asks of us. So we need this quality of equanimity in order to navigate the inner terrain of our hearts and minds at the same time as we're navigating and trying to get through life, the outer terrain of life our family, the jobs, social and global responsibilities that we have. So this balance is really what we need, um, this ability to open and be big enough to contain all that life presents to us. This is a a beautiful saying by Achan Sumedho, one of the great American Theravadin monks of our time, actually, in the Achan Cha tradition, one of the great uh, forest monastery teachers of, of Thailand. So Achan Sumedho says, the mind can be like space. There is room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we know that space of the mind, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave. Butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through without us being caught in reaction or resistance. So this is equanimity. All things can come through without reaction or resistance. This is the spaciousness, the space of equanimity. And from another tradition of, um, this is from Carlos Castaneda, 
what Don Juan, his teacher, said to him. The ordinary person views life's experiences as either blessings or curses, but the person who is a spiritual warrior sees all of life's experiences as opportunities for power and knowledge. So equanimity empowers empowers us really to be able to open to all of life and to face it. One of my, the first times I remember having to um, do this was early on and and um, I was in my 20s. And I'm sure you all have your stories too. I'm not special about this, but sometimes I just tell these stories to kind of acknowledge your own lives. I was born in the Philippines and I came to America when I was two and I went back to the Philippines. And long story short, I had three children by the time I was like 23. And um, and so they were all little and I had to leave the Philippines because of martial law. And I was in a family that was a political family and uh, Ferdinand Marcos proclaimed martial law and the family that I was in was in the opposition. So our family, me and the children, were in danger and I had to leave, but I couldn't leave because um, two of my children were born in the Philippines and I couldn't take them out because they were Philippine citizens. And so I had to get help to leave. And it was a dangerous time. Um, Parts of the family I was in were incarcerated. So that, you know, just a few of the details. And I really had to have a big mind to kind of let everything in and make my decisions based on that. And there was a lot of fear of what could happen fear of losing my children, fear of, um, you know, even more than that. There were other conditions. And so there were a lot of steps I had to take. And the mind had to really take it all in and really weigh it all and respond to it. And I had to be really clear-minded to keep myself and the children safe. And and we did get out of the Philippines. It took about eight months. So knowing how to navigate in challenging times is something that we all face as human beings. We're at different times in our lives faced with decisions we have to make, ways we have to move, And we have to be able to be not pushed around by inner fear or by wanting to retaliate or wanting to blame or wanting to shame. But we we have to keep ourselves safe and open and clear, honorable. So another saying by Don Juan um, to Carlos Castaneda, The art of being a spiritual warrior is to balance the terror of being human with the wonder of being human. So just admitting, you know, how hard it is to be in this life, but knowing that we can do it. 
So in this space, there can be a lot of clarity because we're not seeing through the veils of, of our habitual tendencies. We're seeing the world with quiet eyes, hopefully more and more, not through avoiding, ignoring, not through confusion, not through aversion, not through attachment, through we want it to be this way. You know, I would have rather had peace in the family and peace there in in the Philippines. But there wasn't. You know, I couldn't be attached to how I wanted it to be. I, I didn't want to leave the family there, really. And it had to be that way. And we had to be able to stay safe and see things as they really are and not to make it all rosy or not to make decisions that would um, keep us in continuing suffering. So we want to take the most skillful action to do what's called for, sometimes to know when it's better not to say or do anything at all. And sometimes we don't give ourselves that that uh, agency to just be quiet, to stand back for now because it's not a good time. We just react right away. We don't think about or reflect on things before we make an action or a decision sometimes. So sometimes people say, well, if, we're, if we have equanimity, then we lose our sense of agency. You know, we don't do anything. We just might say, well... I see it clearly, this is the way it is right now. But in in that example I gave you from having to take action, um, you know, we do have a sense of agency. It's not about just saying, okay, spacious, clear, balanced, and then doing nothing. It's like spacious, clear, balanced, and then asking, now what can I do? Now what can I say? Now what action can I take? from that place. So we do have agency, but we have agency that can bring forth wisdom instead of habitual tendencies that can bring forth skillful ways of protecting ourselves and and family and society and community. At least having the clear intention to do that. If it doesn't turn out that way, we did the best we could, and then we take the next step. So agency is really a part and parcel of all of this. It isn't taken out of the equation. So a lot of what we say in the moment or when people know what equanimity is all about or maybe have done the equanimity practice, which is another one of the beautiful Brahma-Vihara practices, Um, There's loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And it's said that equanimity is the most powerful of all those four. Because it's able to face the ups and downs of life. One of the phrases we use in equanimity practice is, this is the way it is right now. And again, it doesn't mean you don't do anything. It means that you open to the moment This is the way it is right now. You take it in. You see what you have to deal with. And then maybe your mind can say, this can be dealt with. Maybe it can go there. Or maybe your mind will say, I can't deal with this right now. So you have to back off and wait. 
So you do what's wise to do in the moment. Sometimes um, with the equanimity phrase, when I see in another, say my children, I see they're going through some difficulty and there's nothing I can do about it. Say, I've, of course, I've tried. Of course, you try to give advice, but, you know, there's a time. They, they listen now, you know, now they're in their 30s and 40s and in their 50s, actually. A couple of them are close to that. And in the past, I would do everything I could, you know, to keep them on the right track. I would say, sometimes with a strong voice, of course, I'm capable of having a very strong voice. (laughs) I sound soft-hearted, but uh, you can ask people who know me. I can have a very strong voice. (laughs) Um, So I can say with a very strong voice, don't, uh, first I, you know, warn and everything, if you go down that path, if you go down that river, there's going to be a waterfall and you're going to be wiped out. Or there's rapids down along the way. I've been down that path. I've been down that river. So if you go down there, this is what's going to happen. And so, you know, I've had, now I have four grown children. And they have said, without, uh, you know, a doubt, um, they've said that they know what they're doing and they're going to do it anyway. And so then you yell at them and you say, please, don't go. You do the best you can. But... My, then my response is, all beings have their own journey. You know, I really just have to do the best I can and to know that they have their own particular unfolding in life. And I don't really have control over it. As a mother, I mean, we learn so much more than anything as a mother. I think I've learned that I really don't have control over their lives their karma, their unfolding, what their causes and conditions in their life, past and present. So if you want to think about karma, it's in the causes and conditions of this life, or it could be past lives, no matter, you know, depending on how big you want to make it. I don't have control over that. I love them, so I'm going to say as loud as I can, please be careful but if they don't follow it, it's not, it's not under my control. And so, um, this is how it is, you know, this is how it is for you. It's a, a, a big thing that I say to myself a long time, that's how it is for this particular grown child right now. You have your own journey in life. So, One of my friends um, went through something very difficult in her life. Uh, She's a yogi and a friend of mine. She lived on Maui. She's moved from there now. But a few years ago, one of her sons disappeared. And um, she didn't know what had happened. She was trying to find ways that the friends would maybe say something to the family or give some clue. But everybody was quiet. And so she just just had all this pent-up um, confusion and also sorrow about it and fear. 
but she held a vigil for that son for a long time, and she was just very, very uh, aware of what was going on in her own heart. It was a great mystery to her, and finally, after all the efforts um, that they they made to find that particular son, she and her husband decided that they were going to sell their home on Maui and travel the world and go to see um, one of their other children who was going to give birth to a child. One of the things she said uh, to me was that she used that phrase a lot, all beings have their own journey. And um, I don't know whether she said this part, but it her experience of what she told me about implied this. Though I do not know what that journey is or understand it, all I can know is that all beings have their own journey. And so this is what kept her mind open and kept a vigil. So um, just before they left, though, uh, the son who had disappeared appeared, and he was totally okay. I really don't know the details of that, but all I know, the bottom line is, was things were more all right than they thought it, it might have been. So again, here you see the experience of loss and sorrow and then of joy and gain that they gain back their, their sons. So this, um, you know, this, these vicissitudes of life very directly affected her. So they finally, after traveling parts of the world, they arrived at their daughter's place in Europe and the daughter gave birth to a beautiful child. You know, so there was um, that joy of having a new, a new child born into their family. And during that time, also my friend got word that another son of hers, not the same one that had disappeared and reappeared, had died tragically. And this was somebody that she had a very close relationship to because they shared the Dharma together. So it was very, very, very heartbreaking for her. There was birth and there was death. The ultimate, you know, um, vicissitude of life, the kind of joy that we might feel at a birth, mostly, and um, the sorrow that uh, mostly we might feel at death. So we see this every day, but we still don't know how powerful and painful it can be until it happens in our own families. So we met while, um, actually Steve and I had met the, uh, both she and her husband in Oregon after they had the funeral for this, this younger son who had passed away tragically. And she said she owed her steadiness and her balance to the Dharma and to the equanimity practice that she did. So I want to read to you a a quote um, that she wrote to me in in one of her little emails telling me how she was. She said, "I, I feel most genuine when I can hold in my heart the sorrow of losing my son alongside the love and joy of who he was. I mean, that's kind of the ultimate, you know, the holding the sorrow and, and the loss of, of the loss and the love, kind of in the, in the same breath, almost. 
She said, I'm staying connected. It seems to me this kind of loss can either destroy us or make us stronger, and I'm determined to learn and grow from it. The Dharma has been very helpful. So this is, a, of course, you know, the, the epitome of gain and loss, joy and sorrow that we have in our lives. And with all of us, without exception, have experienced this in our own ways. All of these ups and downs. Some of the things I say to myself just quietly, the unfolding of a person's life is a result of many countless, unknowable, uncontrollable forces. That Those people that I'm deeply connected with, their, um, their ups and downs in, of their inner life their causes and conditions are something that are completely out of my control. And so all I can do is the best I can to hold them with my own uncontrollable causes and conditions. So it really takes a very wide space, this equanimity. I love the way the Zen tradition says, all my ancient twisted karma. You know, all these causes and conditions that we have no remembrance of but they're all you know this is all what's unfolding in this moment but we have the power to create different causes and conditions in the future by how we respond to those causes and conditions that are coming up right now in this moment how we respond to them is our ultimate sense of agency that when they, whatever comes up outwardly, how do we respond to that inwardly? And then how do we respond to what comes up inwardly so that we're really responding to what comes up from causes and conditions in the past that are arising in this moment that we have no control over? It's already happened, the causes and conditions have already been put into motion. It's already happening in the present moment. Really no control over that. It's already happening. But we have this control over how we respond. So that's why it's so important to know our inner life and to have a sense of influence over that, which is this sense of awareness, equanimity, compassion, gentleness, wisdom that that brings for all of that brings forth. These are all the qualities that are becoming stronger in us. So sometimes the metaphor of the sky is used to describe that inner sense of equanimity, the heart and mind that can be infinitely spacious and hold all of what life has to not just offer in terms of the beauty of life, but all it kind of brings to, to our awareness, the, the beauty and the sorrow. So one of the um, descriptions of equanimity is not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control. Not being thrown off balance 
by events beyond our control. So what's that? It's the event that's happening right now. It's the event that's coming up in the present moment. So we're not thrown off balance by equanimity. If we are able to say, not just about outer events, but inner events now, this is what's important in our meditative practice, that we're able to say, in relationship to the inner event, this is what's happening right now. And to just be able to say that with a sense of honesty, to see it truthfully, this is what's happening right now, instead of avoiding it by all the things we do to avoid, busying ourselves and um, running away from what's unpleasant. But just being with it, that, that sense of aversion that we feel towards life that's not agreeable to us. And, and that's a lot of life. So we have a huge influence of how we respond to that by not rushing into that place where we want to react with um, something we say or something we do. A lot of our practice now as meditators is just seeing how it goes on inside, but not saying anything or not doing anything. So how many times have we been in a situation where we're right in the middle of like an argument uh, with someone. This is relational. This is the truth of life. And it's like something is said and we want to say something back. But we know that if we do something or we say something, it's going to just cause more complications. So a lot of our practice as meditators now is just seeing what goes on in the mind but not acting it out. So the precepts mean a lot to us not saying or doing anything that's going to cause more harm. This is really powerful. We have no idea how much power this is that we have, that we know if we say something out loud or we do something, it's not skillful. So we refrain from doing it. This is a huge purification, of purifying our speech and behavior through the precepts. But another avenue and another level of purification is even when we see it in the mind there's equanimity to that experience like we we could not like something of course you know we don't like things that are happening in the world or we don't we see it come up in the in our minds and we say okay there's equanimity towards this there can be there they, we see the mind reacting but we don't have to react to that reactivity. There's just a sense of like seeing the aversion that's there, seeing the wanting that's there, seeing the um, bitterness that's there, seeing the, the feeling of shame that's there, and not reacting to that. So being able to say, this is what's going on in my heart, and just being kind of spacious with it balanced around it. This is huge. We, we might see it and, and then feel a little bit of shuddering, but then feel okay with being able to see it. This is a huge moment of purification. It's a weakening of that reactivity. So even in our daily lives, there's a lot of, of this weakening of habit patterns that are happening that we have no idea how powerful that is. It's already happening, there's equanimity, or there could be gentleness, there could be 
compassion in that moment. And so there's a real power of responding to ourselves in that moment. So we're changing our lives by doing this. We're really changing the way we're, we're responding to life. So there's not that, what we call the far enemy of reactivity, which is, it comes in two parts. Reactivity is either aversion to or attachment to what's going on. So when we see this aversion or attachment or any iteration of it, we can respond with, okay, this is how it is. It's like that pure awareness that is um, connected with this powerful equanimity. One time I was with a, a story I often tell. I was with a a neighbor, and she wanted to talk to me about something she didn't like going on at the... Um, we, we share a boundary line with her. And she was really upset because uh, we were kind of mowing along our boundary line or clearing it up. And she liked all the brush that was there. She liked all the kind of growth that was there because I guess it, it kind of gave her a sense of more privacy. And there were other things that she was complaining about, but this was a, a major thing, one of the major things. And we were in conversation, and she was making her point very, very strongly. And I was very strongly making my point that we have a right to do this. This is on our side of the property, etc. So it got very heated between us. And then um, I realized, at one point I realized, she's upset, and I'm upset, and I better not say anything anymore because it's just going to cause more disharmony. So I said kind of, you know, like in the I messages that we need to give when we're in relationship, I'm feeling like I might say something that's unskillful right now, and I'm a little bit confused, so I think I'm going to be quiet and I'm not going to say anything. And I said, I thought to myself, this is how it is right now with me. So I, that's why I said to her, I'm not going to come from the clearest place, so I'm going to be quiet now. And so then she said, that's true. You're not in the clearest place right now. <laughs> I, I, just, I just wanted, I, you know, the, the feeling that I had in my body, not just what I wanted to say, come out of my mouth, but the feeling I had in my body was just like, ooh, better watch, really better watch it. <laughs> so um, of course, I, I could never really strike out, but I could have a feeling of doing that. So, you know, that's the far enemy, that's reactivity, kind of striking out, you know, when we don't like. But when we don't do that, that's really powerful. That's what Steve was talking about last night, the power of renunciation, the power of restraint. That you're, so that's what stands out. That's what's more powerful than that reactivity, is the power to say, I'm not going to do this. So really understand that, how strong that is. Even if you see your mind doing something, but you don't do it, that's really good karma. 
So the near enemy, the opposite of that, is called indifference or apathy or passivity, when we don't really care, or we're in denial, or we're not even taking interest. There's a kind of emotional emptiness in us. And we have to know when we're feeling that too, because sometimes we call that one of our, um, I won't mention who, but I've just heard it from one of our Tibetan, wonderful Tibetan teachers calls it stupid equanimity. <laughs> it's, it's when really we feel passive and we're, we're feeling empty and it's the uh, kind of indifference or apathy. Do, not empathy, but apathy. We don't really care at all. It's really helpful for us to know that in ourselves when we feel a sense of resignation or helplessness when we, we, we really don't feel that sense of agency that we really have, that we can take a stand, that we can say, no, this is not right. But we don't have to do it with anger. We can do it with power. We can do it with a voice that's loud. But it, it can be a real sense of power and a real sense of agency. So in the Dhamma, we're encouraged to know what's going on in our hearts and minds really clearly, deeply, honestly, before we act or we speak, so that we have this clear intention to keep the precepts of harmony. But we also have a sense of agency to take a stand, to know our capacity to speak out and to say what's right or to say what's wrong with what's going on. So this... Um, giving rise to a sense of agency and clear intention, what brings this forth is a sense of equanimity. So we can know what's going on inside, and if we know that it's, it's going to be harmful, we can refrain. But if it's going to be skillful, to really act on it. So knowing the terrain, the terrain of the... Um, of being reactive, this is the far enemy, and the near enemy is called uh, indifference. It's called the near enemy because it can seem like uh, equanimity, but it's really powerless. It can feel helpless. So taking the time to assess what's going on inside, and then really having a sense of that we, we can come from a place of decisiveness, we, we can possess a lot of power to make a life miserable or joyous. So I want to read from Goethe now, who said this very powerful statement about um, having a sense of agency by knowing where we're coming from. I've come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather I possess tremendous power to make a life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis will be escalated or de-escalated and a person humanized or dehumanized. So this is the power we have when we understand equanimity and when we really use it in our lives. I'd just like to um, 
tell a story of, of a, a sense of that spaciousness and equanimity that we can have and, and just end with a, um, a transmission uh, from one of our teachers, Manindraji. And um, Manindraji was also the one of the first, if not the first teacher of, of Joseph um, Goldstein, who was one of the founders and developers of this beautiful place here, along with Sharon Salzberg and others. Steve was here during that beginning time, too. And so um, I think uh, Joseph spent about seven years with him altogether in India. So this is one, uh, one of the times I was with Manindraji um, before he passed away, and I went to visit him in India. And one of the things he had the vision that to have uh, uh, me experience was to go down the Ganges River with him. And he wanted me to see actually all the burning gats gets on, the, on the side of the river. This is one of the things, you know, if you're a Dharma teacher, you want your, your student to really face death in the most powerful way it can. He couldn't bring me to a cemetery that, you know, where you, you can actually watch this happen in times of the Buddha like that. But one of the things he, he really wanted to see was it, is if he could find a body floating on the river and point it out to me. I mean, only your Dharma teacher would want that from you, <laughs> for you. So... Yeah, he kept looking at the river, but he never saw, you know, an arm or a leg or a head <laughs> floating down. But we did see the burning gets. And so we arose before dawn, and our last day, of my friends and I were in India, some girlfriends in the Dharma, and we were in Varanasi. And so it, it was... Um, it was still dark, and we had rented one of those boats that go down the river on the right side of the burning ghats. And on the left side is where the sun may rise. And so here we're going down the river, and uh, to the left we see uh, the, all the fires burning already, and the families around the, you know, around the burning ghats where a loved one is um, burning. In, in cremation. And there's sorrow, of course, you know, in, in their hearts. And, and there's some crying and, and there's some ways that, uh, that, they're, that it's faced, of course. You feel the sorrow and, and you just see this is a loss. And then beside me is my teacher. And it's one of the great blessings to have a teacher. And um, so he's close to me and and I went to visit him because he's older and he's going to die sooner or later you know I didn't know when but he had some condition then so here he can be close to me and he's alive and so here you know I feel joy and and happiness because this is beautiful that I could have this there's there's loss and there's a gain for me and there's sorrow and there's a joy for me in my, in my life in that moment. It's not always, but in that moment. And so as we're going down also, there's this, on the left side, there's this great ball of fire 
you know, of the, of the sun rising on the horizon. And it's a beautiful morning. And it's a clear morning. And it's still. And there's this uh, birth of the new day. And then on the right side, there's a death happening. And um, so there's birth and death. And there's joy and sorrow. And there's many other ways that, you know, I've been to India three times now in my life, and there's also great beauty in in India. There's a beauty that's in the rawness of life in India. You just see it so closely and so in your face, so rawly. I mean, just going to a third world country like that, um, like the Philippines, it it assaults you with the truth of life and with the beauty of life at the same time. So there's also that, the beauty and the rawness, the death and the new life and the sorrow and (coughs) the joy and the loss and the gain. And there's this wideness of the horizon, you know, the sun on one side and on the other side of the river there's death and there's this huge space that it can be held in. And so this is, this is our life and all the things that go through our lives. And can we hold it all? I mean, that's, that's the koan for us, really. Can we hold it all? And I don't know the answer. I mean, of course, you know the answer for yourselves. And um, so can we hold it all? with equanimity, especially our, our own hearts, our own lives. What's happening in here? Can we hold that and not react to it? So it's said that equanimity is this deep love that can hold everything yet possess nothing. So let's sit for a moment with that. Thank you for your kind attention. So we have um, 20 minutes now. So why don't we come back at, at 10 minutes after? So we have a half an hour to take, take some time to see the stars, have a cup of tea. Thank you.